lots of prayer right now because I want to do something that is not simple. Can we go down a little bit on the lights? I need, I'm going to need a lot of eye contact today. Okay, I want to do something that's not simple, and I want to do it fast. So that's tough, but we can do it, okay? I think it actually it does better when we just sort of move along in it. Some, a lot of this is going to be something that people have heard before, but we're driving to a place that is astounding. So let me just start off by, by doing it this way, okay? Uh, anybody know who that is? Mark Spitz, right? Okay. The most... Michael, uh, Phelps. Michael Phelps, excuse me. <laughs> what did I say, Mark Spitz? <laughs> Who's that? An old guy. Is it Mark Spitz? Is there a Mark Spitz? That was, okay, all right, sorry. Dating myself. That's why I don't get to go to the 20s group. Okay. Michael Phelps, excuse me. Now, no, despite some of his own personal choices, lay that aside for a second. I just want you to see a world-class athlete, okay? The most accomplished swimmer in the history of swimmers, okay? Now, look at his concentration. Look at those eyes. Can you, the eyes are the windows of the soul. Can you see his soul? Because I can. And here's what he's doing. He's visualizing. He's, he's doing his race in his head. He's concentrating in a way that you, could, you wouldn't even get, if you saw him, you wouldn't get close to him. The energy would repel you because he's concentrating. I take off with that funny little takeoff that he does. And then, I, and then entering the water. And then that little kick that he gets to get that little extra distance. And then coming out of it and strong. I got to pull. I got to pull. I got to pull. And then I hit the wall and I spin and I come back. And I'm, and see what I mean? He's visualizing the entire race, Right? Now, it's not just him that does that, of course. This is Lindsey Vaughn, who, is she the most decorated skier? I don't think she's, the, is she the most decorated skier of all time, too? If she's not, she certainly is for women, okay? But I think she might be of all athletes. And this is Lindsey Vaughn, and you see what she's doing. Same thing. See, she's visualizing it. She's got it in her head, and she's hitting this corner, and then she's coming up, and then I got to go down here, and it's going to be an off slope, so I got to really get on that edge hard, and I got to hang in there, and I got to keep going until I can't stand it anymore, and then I can pop out of it. You see what she's doing? She's doing her race, okay? Now, it's not just one team sports, it's not just one on one sports. It's also, this is LeBron James right before the finals. See what he's doing? He's working on, okay, I'm going to get the ball. There's going to come a point in time. I'm going to get the ball. It's going to be down low. I'm going to have to go left, but he knows I'm going to go left. And so I'm going to have to go left, and I'm going to have to start going left. I'm going to have to pivot back around. You see what I mean? He's running it through his head. He's visualizing it. Okay? Same thing with our beloved Russell Wilson. Okay? I mean, look at him. You see what he's doing? He's working through. He's working through. When this happens, this has got to happen. When this happens, this got to happen. Now, we do know one thing that he didn't think about, but we're not going to talk about that. Okay? Didn't quite catch that corner closing so quickly, okay? All right. But the point is, is you can see him working. You see him? He's working through. Okay. When I call this play, I got to look at the corner. Is the corner closing? If he is, I got to go somewhere else. I got to do this. I got to do that. See what I mean? He's visualizing what he's doing. He's working through the possible scenarios. And look at how dynamic these scenarios are. Okay? And the reason why he's doing that is because everybody will tell you is that this is what makes great athletes greater. This is what makes any athlete greater, in fact. Famous test. I've told you about it before. I went and looked up the details. It's even worse than I, or even better than I thought. College coach takes three groups of kids. Uh, one group, he has them, they all shoot baskets, and he records how many baskets they make after a certain amount of time, right? Then he takes one group, and they, for an hour a day, for the next 30 days, shoot hoops. Takes a second group, do nothing. But takes a third group. The third group visualizes and never touches a ball again for 30 days. Just visualizes. The group that did nothing, how'd their scores improve? Not at all. Literally, same exact scores. That was a control group. The group that practiced an hour a day, 24% increase. You would expect that, right? You're practicing. You're getting better. 24% increase on free throws, significant. Okay? Here's the blow away. The group that visualized it for, and just visualized it for an hour a day for 30 days had the exact same percentage increase as did the people that practiced that doesn't make any sense, right? Would you do that? Would you think the way to learn how to play tennis is to think about it in your head? No. Turns out it's a pretty good way to learn. 
Turns out there's something to it. There's something to the way that God made us. When I talk about visualization, and we're going to talk about it a little bit today, can I do something? Can we all just forget about that sort of new age thing? But, but let me say something. Don't forget about it entirely because the reason why it works is because God made us that way. Just because they tapped into something that God made us to doesn't mean that it's not God. Just because they're using it for other things. I'm visualizing that I am rich. I'm visualizing that I am happy. I'm visualizing, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But you know what? Let's be clear about something. It's not that bad to visualize that you're happy. It's not that bad to visualize a lot of things. In fact, here's the thing that I want you to do, and this is the thing that we're going after today. God made us to be able to improve terrifically if we will consider, if we will think about, if we will visualize, if we will pattern our brains to certain things. And I want to ask you this question. How many of you would like to never again be scared when you're witnessing to somebody? Would you like that? How many of you would like to be world-class when it came to ministering to somebody? Would you like that? I would. Right? It turns out that what God is saying is there's a way to do this too. I, I, I never saw it until this sermon. But one of the reasons why we get so piled up when we go to witness to a coworker, a neighbor, a friend or something, we see him and we know we're supposed to do something and God moves and we don't know what to do and we get in the middle of it and we make a big kibosh of it and it doesn't go well and then we walk and never do that again. But what did we do to prepare for it? We say we prayed. By the way, be sure and pray. But when you're praying, what's wrong with going through it and saying, okay, I know I'm about to see my mom. And I know my mom is the world's best mother. Mother, I love you. You're incredible. But I'm just talking about other mothers now. My mom is, you know, problematic. And when I talk to her about Christ, I know she's going to say certain things to me. What's wrong with taking some time and considering how that interaction is going to go? Not to, not to play it out and then when you get off script it goes bad. But like a Russell Wilson or a LeBron James in a dynamic situation like a game... God, when she says that, what am I supposed to say back? And picture it. She says to me that hurtful thing that she can say. Now, what am I supposed to say? My friend and my coworker, when they, when they make that accusation against me that I know is coming, when they say that, how am I supposed to act? What am I supposed to, how, what am I supposed to feel? What would you like me to say? What, what's in there? And again, it's not to pretend a script that if you get off script, that would be rote, formula. What it is is, is really allowing the Lord to speak to you. Really allowing the Holy Spirit to put you in that situation and show you what can happen. Can you imagine a time where you'd get so good at visualizing an encounter with somebody that when you had it, you'd already had it? Instead of walking in there cold, I don't know what to do, oh my God, I'm freaking out, what am I, I'm saying wrong things, what am I going to do wrong? But you were so practiced to it that you could just unfold it. The old saying is, is that amateurs practice until they can get it right. Pros practice until they can't get it wrong. See it? How would you like to be a world-class instrument of the Lord's in anything that he would lead you to do? Would you like that? I hope so, because that's where we're going. Who's our prayer? Andy, Davey, that is awesome. Andy, thank you for what you're doing in worship and the way you've been stepping up and all over the place. This is fairly new to the church. Australia and so on, you'll figure that out when he starts talking. But, but just really, really, really wonderful people. I think you already know about half the people in here, but if you don't know him yet, be sure, okay? Go ahead and pray for the sermon. Lift up another church. Heavenly Father, we just humbly come before you this morning, Lord. Our prayer this morning, Lord, is that your word would find um, good soil in our hearts. Lord, that you would bear a lot of fruit this morning, that we wouldn't let um, our preconceived ideas, our own agendas, Lord, choke out what you want to do this morning. Amen. Father, we also lift up um, uh, Grace Fellowship on the Gold Coast for next Amen. Sunday, Lord. Lord, I just pray that you would just bless them with your favor, Lord, and your presence Amen. in a real and tangible way. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Andy. We are in our series, Empowered. Uh, 
We are in our series Empowered, and this is simply talking about how the Holy Spirit comes down upon in order to move through. You can already see where we're headed by the introduction, right? We're talking about how to do this better through this visualizing thing that we're talking about. But actually, we're going a little bit deeper, and this is, I don't know how many sermons we're going to be doing on this, because there's a revelation in here that's extremely important, okay? And it has to do with this idea. There's this, you know, I've, I've had people for years talk to me about their identity in Christ. And can I say something? I'm not the smartest guy, but I don't think I'm the dumbest. I, maybe that's just hubris and pride, but... But the bottom line is, is whenever people said the identity in Christ, that always seems sort of fanciful language to me. I, I, I don't know why. I, I knew that they were speaking about something that really meant something to them as being important, identity in Christ. And I knew that identity in Christ is important. But for some reason, it just never had a, it never had a, a hook in me to where that was something that was terribly important for me personally. I, I mean, I get that I'm a Christian and that that's my identity and you see what I'm saying? But it never got deep in me until today. And now all of a sudden, I get what identity in Christ is about and how critical it is for us to actually do what the Lord wants us to do and to be. It's critical that we know the thing that we're going to be learning today. So what I want to do is I want to say, I just kind of want to lay out for you this, I'm going to go through kind of an argument. And so this is going to be a little different. The first thing we're going to do in order to get this right about our identity is and how to understand it and all this thing, the first thing we have to establish is that we really are spiritual beings. Now a lot of you already know that, but would you, this needs, I need to build some foundation in order to get to the revelation. So if you've heard some of this before, would you just bear with me on it? I'm going to try and do it quickly enough that I won't bore you, but I do think it bears the repeating. This is very fundamental Christian stuff we're going to talk about at the beginning. Okay? There are two different states in which our spirits can be. Okay? We're body and spirit. There's two different states in which that spirit can be. Okay? And there's two different ways in which we can get our identity. There's two different paths and flows. Now that's what we're going to do, so let's hit the first one. To understand our identity, we must understand that we really are a spiritual being, and the best proof of that, I believe, uh, reasons to believe, just quoted a, a survey that came out that had to do with knowing and language and so on, and, and that's a, this is a really big item for me, but the best proof for how we know things is how we know things versus how God knows things, and there's three elements to it, how we know things, how God knows things, and then how we actually do exhibit what God does, even though we're not God. That's, this is one of the most powerful arguments that there is. In fact, I believe it to be the most single powerful argument for the true existence of spirit that there is. Okay? And I'm only going to give you the outlines of it. There's much more to, that could be said, but we're just going to go. So, how our physical brains know. Okay, here's what God says. I don't think the way you think. The way you work when you think isn't the way I work when I think. For as the sky soars high above the earth, so the way that I think works surpasses the way that you work, the way that you do things. And the way I think is beyond the way that you think. Now, just, just real quickly, uh, do, do, I have a, do we have microphones? I don't know, maybe I'll... But, what does God mean when he says his way of thinking is different beyond what we think? Can somebody just, I just want a couple of people to yell it out. What, what does that mean? 4D. What's that? 4D? Oh, oh, I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. Give me another couple. How's it beyond? I mean, I want you to think about how he thinks. Go ahead. That's awesome. Definitely. What's that? Timeless. Absolutely. What else? Just a couple? Doesn't think about himself. That's interesting. I like that. Here, here, let's do something here, okay? Watch. So God formed from the dirt of the ground all the animals of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what the man would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature was its name. So here's my question for you now. Why did God have us name the animals? Think about it. What's that? That's right. Go ahead, Rich. Rich. 
I like that. Uh, the Dominion, that's a very plausible explanation for it very much. We're going to go there and? Stewards, yes, that's the same as dominion. Stewardship is as good a word, if not better, than dominion, really, right? What's that? I like that. Thank you, Kate. That's awesome. I'm going with that one. <laughs> Even if it's not true, I like it. I don't think God's offended by it. Go ahead. Uh, bing, ding, ding, ding. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick up that thought right there. Well, there you go. Okay. <laughs> Why did God have us name the animals? Let me give you the simple answer that I'm going to present to you right now. Because he didn't need a name for them. Now, by the way, when we say name the animals, here's what he wasn't doing. He wasn't seeing a bear or a deer and calling that deer Ralph. Right? He wasn't giving it a name like Kurt Brunk. What he was doing was is he was saying, what kind of animal is that? What kind of animal? Genus, species, subspecies, so on, right? What kind of animal is that? And the man said, deer. Now, now watch why we need that. I want you to think about that, we have, that we're bodies with physical brains. Okay? Here's what he says. God is talking about something else entirely, but he's talking to the nation of Israel, and he's saying this. I'm trying to teach you something. You're failing to get it. The reason why is because you're stuck in the baby stuff of knowing. Maybe, maybe I'm going to rephrase that. The way the physical brain needs to know, you're not getting past what the physical brain can know. You're stuck in what a baby does, and frankly, what another animal does. We'll see that in a second. You're stuck in the way the brain works, and you're not catching what I'm saying and adding to that pot. So here's why he says it. To whom will he teach knowledge? To whom will he explain the message? And he's frustrated right now with them. He's saying, those who are weaned from milk, those just taken from the breast, is that what you are? Are you a little baby? Do you have to be stuck in, is essentially what he's saying to paraphrase, that it's precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. And as I pointed out before, what he's really talking about is, in the Hebrew it sounds like da, 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 blah, 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 blah. That's a good little girl, that's a good little boy. Say da da da. It's no it, it, da 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 da. And what he's saying is, he's saying that way of knowing, which is the way that our brains are made. Let's be honest. Our brains are line upon line and precept upon precept, right? There's all these neurons that are firing. So this is very much how our brains know. And we think that that's the only way we know. I'm trying to make the argument no, that's not the only way we know. That's one way which we know, but there's something transcendent of just that. But in order to understand that, it's nice to know the word bear. <laughs> right? It's nice to know that. Okay? Because when you're talking to somebody, you say, I saw Frank get eaten by a bear. You know, b-air-er, so there's the phonemes. You know, that big furry thing. You know, the one with the big carnivorous teeth. Right? You know, like the rabbit in Monty Python with the big teeth. Okay? Sorry. So you see it? It's nice to know what a bear is. And what, and what we're doing when we're naming that animal a bear, we're not just calling it, we're just saying, well, that's a bear. There's information about what a bear is, right? A deer is lovely and cute and Bambi and pretty good for venison food, but we won't leave that... A bear, on the other hand, is just pretty much stay away, right? Unless you're really hungry, okay? And then it depends on who gets to eat, okay? But you see, the way that our brains work, this is slices of just as one slice of the brain. And, and look, this is just one thought that they're capturing. You know how we can do that now, right? They can see neurons firing, and the, the, the more white they get is the more they're firing. So you see a thought starts, you see it, but you see it starts on the other side, almost, can, you see even the very first one, you see it right up there? The first one is starting to show up somewhere else in the brain too. Now that's a line, and that's a line. 
You see? And then those lines start to go line upon line, catching other neurons, other thoughts, and then pretty soon they start going to other parts of the brain and picking up connotations, not just phonemes and names and so on. And then they're picking up this and picking up that. In fact, if you want to see what a brain looks like when it's thinking, I can't remember if this is full animation. I think this is a drawing put on top of an actual picture, but I could be wrong about that, so don't take my word for it. But this is what a brain looks like when it's actually firing. Like, I'm talking, you're listening, you're thinking. This is what your brain's doing. See? It's, it's information from all over. Language parts, visual parts, meaning parts, context parts. All of this kind of stuff. Line upon line, precept upon precept. Do we got it? That's how we think. That's how our brains process information. Got it? So now, if that's how our brains process information, here's the big question. How does God know stuff? He doesn't have a brain. Now, when we say he doesn't have a brain, that's an insult, right? You don't have a brain, right? That means you don't know anything. God doesn't have a brain, and it turns out he knows everything. So how does he know it? If it's not line upon line, precept upon precept, here's the bear. Here's what God knows about that bear that you don't. What you know is, I was walking through the woods, and I saw a bear, and it was hungry, and I was in trouble. That's it, right? Here's what God knows about that bear. He knows the moment that that bear was conceived. He knows what was happening to that bear inside the womb. He knows what happened when that, when that bear was born. He knows what kind of mother the bear had. He knows what kind of experiences the bear had when he was growing up. He knows that a badger swiped him across the nose, so he's a little irritable sometimes about things. He knows that he didn't eat that morning, and so he's particularly hungry. He knows everything about that bear that can be known. That's what we say when we say omniscience is all-knowing. When we say all-knowing, remember when I said, we, we talked about how does he know, and, and, and Chris back there said, time, timeless? Think about, think about how God knows. He's not line upon line, precept upon precept. You know what line upon line, precept upon precept is? What, what's the earliest computer? Is it an Atari? Would that be an Atari? What? Okay, but e either way, my point is, take that earliest stupid computer, the one in which, you know, your phone is like, what, 100 times more powerful than that computer? It is. Here's the point. See, if computers are still doing the same thing they were doing back then, aren't they? They're just doing it faster. And they've gotten a lot faster. But they're still stupid compared to knowing everything the way God knows it. The way he knows everything is perfect and pure. And he doesn't just know everything that's happening right now and then everything that happens in the next moment and then everything. He knows everything that's ever happened in every way possible. That's what omniscience is. It's a much bigger concept than we think. He doesn't just know everything that's going on. He knows everything about everything about everything about everything. This is what he's doing in Job. When Job, when Job has an accusation against him, and God comes back, shows up, right? And he says, gee, Job, if you're going to have an accusation against me, surely then you must know a lot. Because you must know why I'm doing what I'm doing. So surely you know, and then he starts talking about created the heavens and the earth. And I always like to say, you know, I think God's saying to Job, he's kind of going, you know, Job, I, I remember making that stuff, and I remember who was there. I don't remember you being there. So if you're going to make an accusation against me, it seems like maybe you ought to know something as simple as that, or, or maybe, you know, how leviathans work. Because, you know, I play with bears and leviathans. Because I know when they're hungry and not. <laughs> Do you see it? The way that God knows is utterly beyond what we know. Do, do you see it? That's what he said, right? He said that what I know is I don't think the way you think, the way you work, isn't the way I work when I think. The way that I think is beyond the way that you think. You see what he's saying? He's making an, sorry, ontological statement. It, he's, he's making a, a base statement. He's saying, I serious, I don't do line upon line and precept upon precept. I don't. What does he do? 
I have no idea. Why? Because I'm line upon line, precept upon precept. I can extrapolate, and I can get a sense of. And there's the key. This is the proof right here. If we are just animals, then we're going to be limited to what animals know and what animals know. A whole lot of awesome things. They know how to be loving and friendly. and they, You know, animals are awesome, right? But here's what no animal has ever done. Sat down and wrote a treatise on the nature of God. Sat down at Starbucks and had a conversation with somebody about how God's love is playing out in their life. That's information that's coming from somewhere else. That's an understanding that's coming from somewhere else. I don't know what it is, but I'm reducing it down in my head to something that I can talk about. See, I'm taking it, and it's an idea. It's an inference. It's, an, it's a, you see what I'm saying? It's an intuition. It's a sense of something. And now I've got to turn it into something that line upon line and precept upon precept can do something with it because I'm limited to this brain. By the way, when I die and I'm delivered from this body of death, what does the scripture say? Then I'll know as I'm known. Right now, it's knowing in a mere dimly, incompletely. But when I die, I'll know as I'm known. Perfectly. I'll be freed from the brain and I'll know the way God knows. See it? So watch it, okay? Here's the proof. We actually know both ways. God formed from the dirt of the ground all the animals of the field. By the way, same way he formed men, from the dirt of the ground. We have a body. Our body is just like the animals. It has arms and legs and, and a brain and, and some hair. And You see what I mean? Oh, we have the same kind of thing that animals do. That's what he says when he says from the dust. But then God did something different with mankind than he did with any animal, and that's this. He blew into his nostrils a breath of life, and he came alive, a living soul. Which is to say, he blew into his nostrils breath. This word ruach in Hebrew, that means breath, that means spirit, that means life. It's this... It's this it's this, it, what is breath and spirit and life? T t take a picture of breath and spirit and life for me, would you? Because you can't do it, can you? doesn't mean it's not real. It just means you can't capture it. It's something, it's got an essence of something that is, right? Now, wind is something that is in the physical, but it's this metaphor for this, this is something else, okay? In fact... Let me just give you, this is a model of man, okay? And I, I tried to find an androgynous person, okay? So did I do good there? Is that a male or a female? I think it depends on what you want, right? Okay. So they, we're given a body, dust of the earth, dirt, right? And then there's this spirit thing over here. And what God does is he makes us dust, and then he breathes into us spirit. See it? So now there's spirit inside of body. Limited by the body, particularly the brain and the knowing that we're talking about, okay? But limited in other ways, too. And the two of those things creates what we call consciousness. This is, by the way, why computers, no matter how smart they get, are not going to transcend. They can become incredibly dangerous. Like, you know, Bill Gates and all these people are scaring us and telling us that computers are going to take over and singularity and all that. The truth is, is computers can get smarter than us and take over everything. But it doesn't mean that they're ever going to reach consciousness. It doesn't mean that a computer is ever going to sit down and write a treatise about the nature of God. And two computers are never going to get together for a date and go to Starbucks and talk about how God's love is manifesting and working out in their life, even in the middle of a very difficult situation. Do you see it? This is a transcendent activity. You see it? I don't know about you, but that's so important. I hope it changes how you think about us, how you think about what's going on. But let me, let me take it some more now, okay? Watch this. All right, oops. Shouldn't have done that just yet. Uh, Zach, come on up. <laughs> wow. <laughs> really sorry. 
Okay, I've done this before. I'm going to do it real quick. I want to show you an example of where transcendent knowledge becomes real knowledge to us. Okay? Now, I don't, Zach and I have never met before. I just learned what his name was. I don't know anything about him. What do I do? I can't know him like God does. So what I do is with my line upon line, I start going line upon line. I look at the way that he cuts his hair. I look at the beard, kind of contemporary, good shape, you know, wears clothes. He's kind of a, he's not a, we wouldn't call him a hipster, but he's not, you know, you know. But he's got a phone holster, so that's totally, yeah. So that tells me something. You see what I mean? I'm learning information about him, aren't I? External information, you see it? Now, if in the process of the first time I've ever met Zach, I discover in meeting him that he robbed a bank, then, then he's a bank robber. So as I put up on the board already, okay, he's a bank robber. He dresses a certain way, and he does his hair a certain way, and he may be past the whole bank robbing thing, but he's a bank robber. That's who he is to me, right? But now watch. Zach, who just knocked it out of the park at our men's retreat, just told stories that just set us up so gorgeously in God of what to talk about and how to talk about it and everything else. Zach just smacked it. It's just awesome. And the thing is, see, I know Zach now. And while I didn't, when I first met him, I knew things external to internal. There comes a point in time at which I start to know Zach. The person Zach. Which may be at odds, frankly, with some of the information externally. Right? When I start to get to know who Zach is, there's all kinds of things that can happen. For example, I can know Zach for, how long have we known each other now? Eight years. Eight years? Wow, it seems like longer. That's a good compliment. I don't mean that in a bad way. said something about a gray beard. I just yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah, my hair wasn't gray when I came here, too, and it's on you. Okay. All right. <laughs> but you see, the thing is, I, there comes a point in time at which my understanding of who Zach is starts to reverse from being external to internal and it starts to go from internal to external, doesn't it? So for example, after eight years, if I found out that tomorrow Zach went out and robbed a bank, factually, he's a bank robber. Still true, right? I mean, that's factually true, right? And yet I can make a statement about him which is more true than that he's a bank robber. I can say, no, it's not, that's not him. It doesn't mean he didn't rob the bank. It means that that's not Zach. That's not the person. That's not the human being. Aren't you glad that God looks to the inside and sees the thing that he made? And that that's how he judges you? And not by all the crap that might be going on on the outside? Do you see it? You see, there comes a time in which it's more true for me to say, He's not a bank robber. There's something that happened, and I could talk to him, and I could find out why, and I could, you see what I'm saying? My knowledge, because I'm starting to go from inside out, I start understanding that those externals don't always line up with who he's made and who he really is, who he's made to be and who he really is. Thank you, bank robber. <laughs> you see it? That's transcendent. That, that's, a, that's a thing that we humans do because we've been inbreathed by God who knows everything and is simply trying to get us to understand more and more in the way that our brains can process it so that we can know it, think it, and communicate it. These things that we're talking about, as I say, I believe are the strongest proof of the spiritual nature of man. I don't believe that we'll ever find anything that will overcome this argument. Okay? I very rarely say that. In most things in science, I'm telling you, there's all kinds of things about science. You can, you can get, do away with the Big Bang and still find God in the way that he describes it and so on, but I'm getting off base. So we just saw that, that argument. Now what we're going to do is we're going to just briefly go over two different states in which our spirits can be. One of them is one with God, meaning new nature. 
The other one, I'm calling somewhat separate. We think of, we think of if, if, you're, if you're accepting Christ and you're with God, and we think of then if you don't have God, then you're not with God. And that's true because when you've been made new, you've been changed on the inside. You become a new creature, and the Holy Spirit has made you new, and he lives with you. So there's a oneness with God, new being. But do understand something. Even people that have not accepted Jesus, not accepted God, Jesus, but God, are still in communication with him through their conscience. God says that. So they're still able, they're made in his image still, they're still in breathe. It may be disconnected from God in some degree. It's not necessarily accurate, but nonetheless there's this, still this ability to be transcendent in their thinking. See what I mean? It's not only Christians that can have intelligent conversations that are greater than what the brain knows and that the brain is marshaled towards that by a transcendent influence. Do you see it? So I'm saying somewhat separated, and that's conscience. Now, watch. Okay, I'm going to do this real quick. That's a cottonwood tree. You guys have heard this before. I'll do it quick. I just want everybody to know it so we can get to the right place. Interesting, that cottonwood tree is maybe, a, I'm going to guess that one's 60, 70 feet tall. On our place in Jackson, we probably have a couple that are over 100 feet. I don't know if they're that tall, but it seems like they are. But anyway, the thing about a cottonwood tree is, in the spring, that would have leaves on it, and it's alive. Looks like a living tree, right? The problem with that is, is the soft wood on the inside of a cottonwood tree, and insects and rot get in the middle of the tree, and it rots it out entirely on the inside, and then a strong wind comes, knocks it over, and you look, and it's hollow on the inside. And I want to say that's a perfect metaphor for people that are walking around that don't have God in their lives. There's a thing that's eating away, and it's rotting away, and there's a, right? Okay, now that may be offensive if you don't know the Lord, but stay with me if you would. So what we're doing is, is that we're saying, God says, everyone who has been born of God, born again, does not sin because God's seed remains in that person. Now, don't just hold on to the does not sin part. Just one second. He's saying he's making a new nature in you. He is not able to sin because he's been born of God. Here's what that's saying. God has put a new seed in you. Before you had a seed from Adam and Eve, they were rebellious. They were separated. The thing that you grew up in, you know, anything that comes out is, comes out of seed, right? A tree doesn't become something different unless you graft something else in. So what you've got is, is you've got all of us being born cottonwoods. And then when you accept Christ, all of a sudden a new seed goes in. And it starts to grow a new tree inside. And at the very beginning, look at that. Somebody would look at you two days old in Christ and they would say, you still look like cottonwood to me. Right? But over time, a new tree starts to manifest fruit. Stuff that wasn't there before. New stuff. New nature, new stuff. Wow. Eventually, of course, I don't want you to see something. Look, does it, mean that, does it mean that there's never any sin in our life that he says he cannot sin? What part of that picture can't sin? The apple tree, because that's the part that's made from God. When God looks at you, what part does he see? He sees the apple tree. That cottonwood tree, that old nature, it's still there. It still has effects sometimes. But it's dying and it's covered by the blood. You see it? When God looks at you, what he sees is that new, and if you don't believe me, in my inner self, says Paul, when he says, why do I do the things that I don't want to do and don't do the things that I do want to do? And then he discovers, oh my gosh, there's a new me. And so he says, in my inner self, I joyfully agree with God's law. See, in my spirit, I joyfully agree with the things of God. And don't you? When you come alive, you did, before, you did not like the things of God, right? The things of God seemed stupid and silly, and they didn't seem to make sense. I didn't understand them, right? I could maybe understand some logic behind them, but they didn't feel real to me. But then all of a sudden, I got born again, and now all of a sudden, it's like I was blind, and now I see, and oh my gosh, that stuff is true. And it's true in ways that are more magnificent and glorious than I could have ever conceived. This is amazing. But it doesn't mean that there's not still cottonwood. So he says, I joyfully agree with God's law, but I see a different law in my body. See it? Waging war against the law of my mind that's trying to follow God and taking me prisoner to the law of sin that's in parts of my body. You see it? Body, spirit, 
that little diagram that we had? Is this all making sense? Like I say, we're doing really deep stuff right here, but I'm doing, I'm doing okay, aren't I? I mean, I'm trying to keep it simple and graspable. Am I okay? Raise your hands if you're going, yeah, I, I'm following, I'm with you. Thank you, God. Uh, you can't imagine how much I prayed that, I, that this would happen, it just happened right there. Because now we're just about to get into really cool stuff. That isn't, but look at this, just, just one last thing on this. God sees you from the inside out, not from the outside in, praise Jesus. Okay, now, here comes the big thing of the day. To understand our identity in God, we must understand two different ways that we get our identity. From God's understanding of us to what we do, a flow, or from what we do. Now, that doesn't make any sense right now. Watch this. Here's our tree again. Only this time I'm taking out the cottonwood, because why not? Okay? Now, you see, I added a root system, didn't I? Now, let's, let's attribute our root system with who God is. That's right. God, that's the foundation. The foundation of everything ought to be who God is. Now, out of who God is, he does stuff. Who is God? Tell me. Give me some adjectives for God. Love, the biggest one. What are some other ones? Truth, creator. What other ones? What's that? Alpha and Omega. Go ahead. What was the other one? Long-suffering. What else? Righteous. Holy. All these things. Let's, let's go to the very foundational one just to keep it simple because we can do this with every single one of those words. God is love. And then he did something. And we can understand what he did any way we want to understand it, unless we're going to be controlled by who God is. See? If God is love, then the explanation for why God did creation is love. It's not slavery. It's not he made us because he needed something done, and so he made a bunch of minions to do his dirty deeds. Do you see it? The way that you understand what he's done is by who he is. Who he is has to come first. And then you can properly interpret what he does. And you can see in creation, he's creating more to be in love with him. God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in oneness, so in love with one another, simply creates more to be one with him. And this is Christ's final prayer. God, make them one as you and I are one. See it? Love. The way that we understand creation is love. Not hardship, not hardness. Love. All right? And then then who are we? See, see where the flow is supposed to go? Now look what comes last in the equation. What we do. Now watch. The way the flow is supposed to go is who God is leads to what he does. What God, what God does leads to an understanding of who we are. We're created to be in love with him, to be one with him. Keeping that love metaphor. If we wanted to do the holiness one, we could walk right through with holiness. And we say we're created to be holy. We're created to live righteously. We're created to be creators. You see, because that's who he is. And out of who he is, he's done things to show us who we are to be. Do you see it? And then we do those things. They're supposed to come out of who we are. Do you see it? That's the proper flow. But let's do what the world does, because God gave the world free will. And so what we do in the world is we strike out that there is a God. There is no God. And so therefore, it's not God that did it. It's science and Big Bang or whatever, whatever you want to call it, right? And so we can strike out what God does, because he doesn't do anything, because there is no God, right? And so now we're getting into a problem all of a sudden, because who we are, what are we? We're an amalgamation of, you know, we're the descendants of gorillas, and it's survival of the fittest, and that's pretty much it. Okay? Any concepts of morality and so on go back to utilitarian concepts of survival. There's no nobility. There's just, a, there's just a, the veneer of morality and nobility in order that we should not end up dying. More people survive and we genetically select because the people who are too selfish end up dying on their own, blah, 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 blah. See what I'm saying? All these evolutionary arguments. So who are we? We're just dust. Right? 
So, and that, you see what I did right there? I took, the, I had a smaller blockage. And the reason why is because this transcendent aspect still tends to bleed through even the person that doesn't believe in God, doesn't it? There's a sense of something more. There's a sense that they're made for something more. There's a sense of something that people still do. So I just wanted to communicate that it's not like a person that doesn't know the Lord doesn't have any sense of what they're to be. But it is stopped up to a degree, right? Because it's not being informed properly. But now, look what we just did, what we do. I need Zach up here again. This one's shorter. <laughs> All right, what we do. All right, now. Okay, Zach and I just met each other, okay? We're at a cocktail party. Our wives dragged us there. We do not want to be here. We went over by the bar to kind of hide. You got to talk to somebody because if you're alone, that really is bad. So we're sitting by the bar sort of nursing a drink, and we got to say something. So what do we say? We say... I'm Kurt. What do you do? No, yeah, not yet. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's where we're going. But he says, I'm Zach. Yeah, yeah. And, we, and we, you know, you don't want to ask the question, but there's no other question to ask, is there? There's only one question that's going to come next for two guys at a party where they're terribly uncomfortable and awkward, right? And they're going to avoid it because they don't want to be like, you know, just too stereotypical, but bottom line is at some point in time, at the same point in time, because we can't stand the silence anymore, we both said to each other, so what do you do? Right? And that's how we're defining ourselves. Thanks. Do you see it? In a world, in a world where there's garbage collectors, that don't want to be garbage collectors, they feel horrible about their lives. Waste management. Well, that's a way to make you feel less horrible. Waste management engineers. Now, I'm not saying all garbage, all people that do garbage hate their jobs. They don't. There's some people that don't even know God and they've decided that they like this job for whatever reason they like it. And so their identity, but you see what's happening? Their identity is being defined by how they feel about what they do. So where's your identity coming from? What you do. Where is it supposed to be coming from? Who God is. What he's made you to be. Do you see it? The most extraordinary people that walk the face of the earth. God says, the last will be first. The first, the ones, the people like me that people know because I stand up here and say stuff. The most extraordinary people are going to be the people that nobody knows. Who understood what their identity in Christ was. And it didn't matter if they were a slave or a garbage collector or a used car salesman or a whatever. They were living the life that Christ was leading them to live because they weren't getting their identity from what they did. They were getting their identity from who God made them to be because of who he is. Do you see it? And so the job was just this, just this who the heck cares what it is? Here's the truth. There's an awful lot of people in the world that end up doing things that they don't want to do. And I've told you, I sold cars for a time, and I hated it so bad. If you'd have told me when I was rich, what's the worst job that you could have, I would have said garbage collector, because I would have never thought that God would ever have me sell cars. <laughs> now, that's true. And if there's anybody that's in here that sells cars, let me, let me make this next point clear. That was a petulant prideful, arrogant, stupid man that said those things to himself and was ruining his identity and what God could do through him because of it. You see it? The day that I was driving to work and after years of fighting God, I was driving to work and I said to the Lord, you know what, if this really is what you want me to do for the rest of my life, there's a guy in service that knows the Lord, and I could really help him. And there's these guys on the sales floor that are just trying to screw people all the time, and I hate what they do, but I love them. 
and I could talk to them about how to live life differently. And boy, they've seen me live life differently. Despite the fact that I was being a petulant little boy and stomping my feet and doing things like this, the fact is the fruit tree was still showing through. And the fact is they knew that I was doing something different. And by the way, you took all of their sales, added them up together, and almost every single month I was more than all of their sales put together. There's about eight, ten people on the team. So eight to ten people every single month that was that way, almost. Now that's not, to, that's not any prideful thing. You know what that was? I just didn't try to screw anybody. I just, I just felt like people were so scared when they walked in there that what I, my job was to convince them that I wasn't trying to get, take advantage of them, that I would protect them, and that they would buy a car at a fair price. Because that's what they wanted. They just didn't want to get messed around with, right? That, they were just scared. So it was hard to get through their fear. And once I got through their fear, then they would not only buy from me, but they'd send everybody they knew to me. And they say, this guy will give you a square deal. It might not be the very cheapest you could possibly buy it anywhere, but it's fair. You see it? You see what happens when we start getting our identity from the wrong places? It kills us. When we start getting our identity from the wrong places, we look at bad things that happen to us, and even if we don't believe that there's a God, people are still capable of doing this, aren't they? I know that there's not any God, but he sure is a bad one. <laughs> he lets planes crash into buildings, and he lets earthquakes happen in Kathmandu, and thousands of people die, and he lets AIDS happen, and he lets all kinds of things, bad things happen, and this is not a good God. Do you see it? So they don't even believe in God, and they're still holding it against him because they're going backwards to who God is. Notice that the root system is drying up see it? Is this ministering? Here's what God wants us to do. Here's what happens when we get there. See, we end up that dead cottonwood tree. When we start letting the flow go from what we do down to who God is, when we start letting our experiences define who God is, and not the word, and not that sense of things, that truth that God's trying to bring us, when we start letting other things define who God is, we pervert the nature of it, we cut off the relationship with him in a way that we start to dry up and die, hollow out and rot away. Good illustration, right? So God spoke. Chapter 1, verse 26, the first words that he says about mankind. You think these are important words? He's defining for us who we are. In the first 25 verses, he's been describing what he's done. And now he's defining who he's making us to be. Let us make man, human beings in our image, make them reflecting our nature. This is who we are. This is your identity. Your identity is God flowing up, right? Flowing up and out. You see it? This is your identity. This is your Christian identity. This is what it means to have your identity in Christ and not in what you do or anywhere else. Your identity is to be in who he is, what he does, who he's made you to be, and then bearing fruit. Isn't that beautiful? So do something with me right now, would you? Does it, I want you to try a visualization of empowered encounters right now. I want you to do this. I want you to be like Phelps. I want you to have the, the, the intensity. I want you to have the control of Lindsey Vaughn. I want you to have the power of LeBron James. I want you to have the godliness and humility of Russell Wilson. I just want you to close your eyes right now and I want you to take a second. I want you to just visualize. What is this? I want you to visualize first the flow, right? That God is trying to go up and out. Up and out. Up and out. And as you start to visualize that, then I want you to let him bring the name of a family member, a coworker, a neighbor, somebody 
bring the name of somebody to your mind. And I want you to start thinking about God coming up and out to this friend, to this neighbor, to this coworker, to this family member. Take a minute and do this. It's just distracting me a little bit. It's so beautiful. Just keep, just do this for another couple minutes, just a minute or two. You see how it's not you that's ministering to that person as you visualize this encounter with them. It's God in you that wants to reach them through you. So come, Lord. Come, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Come up. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. At the beginning of our sermon, actually in the worship set, we prayed that awesome song, or we sang that awesome song at the end about going out to the nations and proclaiming his word. Reach down in front of you and grab these cups, would you? Lord, in Jesus' miraculous name, incomprehensible and yet known beauty beyond our understanding and yet appreciated loved loving us in ways that we haven't begun to imagine and yet it's the most love that we experience towards anybody ever in Jesus holy and precious name God we recognize that you are just trying to bring us into alignment with you to the fullness of the life that you have for us. We recognize that we have not walked in that. We recognize that we've done other things. But in Jesus' holy and precious name, God, you're a good God. And you who began a good work in us is being faithful to complete it until the day of your coming. And so in Jesus' name, God, we know we've broken things and we put our fingers in here and say we've broken things. But God, we don't look at our brokenness. We don't identify ourselves by our brokenness. We identify ourselves as the one who by your stripes has been healed, have been healed. We don't identify ourselves as sinners. We identify ourselves as saved. We don't identify ourselves as failures. We identify ourselves as children of the Most High God. God, you took upon yourself everything that it took to bring us into this that you had intended from the beginning that we fell from, but you are restoring the fullness through us one day at a time, one moment at a time. But in Jesus' name, you are restoring to us everything that the cankerworm stole. 
And so we say, thank you, God. Praise your name. Glory to your name. Surpassingly, you, God. Heal us, Lord. Heal us, Lord. Heal us, Lord. We take this bread together saying, heal us, Lord. Thank you, God. Identifying as healed now. Thank you, Lord, for healing us. Thank you, Lord, for purchasing for us by your blood the life that is glorious, the life that is surpassing, the life that is magnificent, the life that is you, a wellspring of living water that flows up and out and brings life to whomever it touches. Your word does not come back void. You will use us for those that we love and have been praying for for so many years. We do not identify the failures of the past. We do not take our identity from that. We take our identity from you who loves them and is going to save them with your strong right arm through us. In Jesus' holy and precious name, thank you, Lord. This is the life that you have for us. This is the truth that we stand in. This is what we identify ourselves as in Christ. Thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Take this cup together, not just for your life, but for the life of the one that he brought to your mind in this illustration. Thank you, Jesus.